Welcome to GLF Live, a podcast from the Global Landscapes Forum. Did you know that half of the oxygen we breathe comes from the ocean? Or that there's about 50 times as much carbon in the ocean as there is in the atmosphere? The ocean covers about 70% of our planet and provides 99% of its habitable space. But it's fair to say that we haven't done the best job of taking care of it. From dying coral reefs to the mountains of trash that we're dumping into it, the ocean is in serious trouble. So what can we do to bring it back to good health? We sat down with a renowned ocean policy expert to figure out how we can turn our blue spaces into safe spaces for humanity and nature alike. Hi everyone, and welcome to GLF Live. I'm Gabrielle Lipton, the editor of Landscape News for the Global Landscapes Forum. And today we're turning our attention to the landscape that covers more than 70% of our planet, which is the ocean. And it's going to be an important conversation because while we often hear about forests and mountains and other terrestrial landscapes and climate conversations, we hear far less about our blue spaces, which are similarly suffering from greenhouse gas emissions and global warming. So today we're going to get a rundown of what's being done to protect the ocean on a large scale through policy and through finance. And we have with us here Dorothy Hare, Manager for Ocean and Climate Change at the Global Marine and Polar Program at the International Union for Conservation of Nature, IUCN, which means she leads their international policy and private finance engagement on coastal and marine nature-based solutions. And she comes from a wide background of working with international organizations through the UN. She's authored numerous papers on ocean acidification, so she's really an expert on this topic. We're really looking forward to hearing from her today. So Dorothy, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me today. Really excited. Thank you. Great. So we'll dive right in to something that I touched upon before, but the ocean has been largely overlooked by the climate change community, or at least not given the attention that it deserves. Why is this? Well, I think first to start, I, I do want to give recognition to those who crafted the 1992 actual framework agreement under the UNFCCC, because they're in various um paragraphs, we have ocean-related uh, recognition or sort of action items already available. But I think over the years, um, we as the ocean community haven't done our job as good as the forest people to put these into action and, and really sort of highlight um, the ocean's role broadly in climate, um, the impacts of climate in the ocean you mentioned already. And I think it's not necessarily that, um, yeah, want to emphasize it's not that forests are better or oceans are better and i never like this sort of comparison of well, one is getting more attention than the other i think for for the solution we we need both and i think also when you look at it from a country point of view, specifically those uh, coastlines, of course, small island states, they have been looking at ocean issues and, and adaptation needs for quite some time. But I think it's only been now in the last yeah, 10 years where this, uh, there is an increased attention to ocean topics across the board, which is quite exciting. Yeah, that is nice. And we definitely want to get back to uh, what's been happening in the last 10 years and where that's Heading, but first, if you could tell us a bit of the ocean science and what's happening in ocean decline and how are greenhouse gas emissions affecting it? And if it's if it keeps going on the track that it's on, where are we headed? 
Yeah, I think um, also to say that the the IPCC actually did a great report just about I think a year or two ago by now to really look at sort of the science on top of the usual um, assessments on ocean and the cryosphere actually, and I think the the main impacts that we see from um, CO2 emissions and sort of the broader greenhouse gas emissions is on one hand ocean acidification. So the ocean takes up more carbon, which is indeed a favor to us, but it comes with side effects to, um, yeah, it can be detrimental for some calcifying organisms, for example. But then we also have ocean warming. So the whole temperature across the board is going up, which means uh, species are shifting, species are reaching their tolerance level. So again, how can we adapt, help them to sort of, um, yeah, be be in sort of the environments. And that, of course, also has implication on communities, fisheries, um, aquaculture, they all will, will see that effect as well. And then we also saw deoxygenation so that we see patches in the ocean that really have less oxygen available, which again has consequences for, for species. And then last but not least, what we've seen also more recently is sort of heat waves, marine heat waves that really comes sort of a bit under the extreme uh, weather events as well. So I think all in all, we see across both the, the temperature, but also the chemical changes really affecting marine life and then in consequences also affecting coastal, but also global, us as a global community as well. Mm -hmm. And to kind of tangent off that a little bit, there's a phrase that we get every second breath from the ocean. Uh, which means that it contributes largely to our oxygen supply. So if this acidification, if this decline keeps on track, what will happen to us as humans and the air that we breathe and the food that we have to eat? Yeah, well, it means changes. I think it's still in our hands a bit to to decide how drastic or dramatic these changes will be. But as I already alluded upon, it will have changes in terms of food security, of uh, fishing rights discussions if we have moving moving species how do we deal with that um i think and largely also on on how badly climate change will impact on the global scale because as i said we see um that uh, the ocean has done us an, a great favor by absorbing um carbon dioxide into the ocean but we also see that that's declining so that means more co2 will remain in the atmosphere because we have the balance between ocean um, and atmosphere and i think it's this understanding that we can't look at mitigation as well as adaptation solutions unless we really understand the full cycle you know what is happening how long uh, you know is or how is the carbon cycle really working the the biological pump you know what is um what is happening and how do we bring that into discussion about the need for for higher level emission reduction targets and so forth so i think it's really this looking at the ocean as as a piece of of the puzzle because it's not just the the atmosphere but it's really the ocean and the various ecosystems that play a crucial role here too mm -hmm. the connectivity through all of it uh, I would like to pivot just a bit and something that you've been saying, something that I've been trying to consciously say is the ocean rather than oceans, which is something that I learned recently. Uh, and this is, it comes from a bit of UN language and campaigning around the concept of one ocean rather than the Pacific, the Atlantic, the Indian, um, the differentiation that we often hear in our grown up grow up learning. Why is this? Why is it important to frame the ocean as a single entity? 
Yeah, I think again, it's like you said, it's it's the connectivity. Surely there are specific characteristics that we see in the various sort of ocean basins, um, and also you know obviously the needs of Arctic communities is different than those within the sits. Um, there's different ecosystems that we need to know about and how to manage them. But I think again, when we talk about the big picture of temperature and carbon, this is all a cycle. So we really need to to think about it as as one ocean. And we know there are no boundaries in that sense, everything is fluid. Um, so how can we also take that into account? And I think, yes, there might be more local or regional solutions, but on the global scale, we are better off thinking as sort of one, uh, yeah, one connected ocean that is connected with the atmosphere, that is connected with the land. Mm -hmm. And I think that leads well into my next question, which is about policy. And much of the ocean is in a ter ter territory called high seas, which means it isn't um, regulated by any specific state. And this concept of one ocean, I mean, it's massive. It covers 70% of our planet or more. Uh, so could you, uh, for those who don't know, give a quick rundown of how ocean policy works and what some of the main barriers are for extending ocean policy to where it needs to go? Indeed, I mean, there there is the uh, United Nations Law of the Sea Convention. So that is actually the sort of the global agreement that uh, discusses uh, or brings the nation to the together to discuss sort of the various big high level topics on, on the high seas. But then of course there is a subset of other agreements that look at, uh, for example, the London Dumping Convention, what is happening uh, sort of of what shouldn't be put into the ocean basically. There are various regional management organization, fisheries organization, and then you have the global conventions like the CBD, Biological Diversity, or the UNFCCC Climate. Um, so I think the, the ocean Ocean, um, you know, has sort of its various subsets and sectors, but I think it's indeed important that we have a broader um, effort to sort of how we manage also those areas, as you said, that are not um, under the jurisdiction of, of one nation. And I think here, specifically also vis-a-vis -vis climate change, it's extremely important uh, to look at the various sectors, um, what are the impacts, what are, again, the opportunities also, and I think specifically on adaptation, the need to create resilience because these are large areas and um, to some degree I think we, we and that is a bit out of sight out of mind and maybe also the answer to your first question that why haven't we paid so much attention to oceans but I think we really need to understand that keeping the ecosystem functioning intact keeping this carbon um, cycle function intact is is incredibly important for for the globe as a whole and that's why it's so important that we also manage the the high seas really accordingly and with climate change sort of in the back of our mind even if it's the marine people doing the 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 sort of the policy making there it is extremely important that topics like climate change are part of those discussions as well mm -hmm. Thank you for that really nice overview. And something that you mentioned in there were the different sectors that come into play in the ocean. And there are so many. There's fisheries, there's transportation, there's waste management. What specific sectors would you like to see most urgently addressed in new ocean policy? 
Yeah, I think it's not one one versus the other. I mean, I'm usually a very optimistic, hopeful person, but but we are five to twelve. Some might even say, you know, it's already five past twelve. So I think we we need to to address them all across the board. And I know, you know, the different sort of topics come in in sort of cycles of attention. And plastic got a lot of attention in the last few years, which, which is fantastic. And I think that sort of for me is also in the um, part of reducing the other stressors because indeed CO2 when we talk climate is the biggest stressor but when we talk resilience we want to reduce um, other stressors or other human induced stressors and indeed plastic is here um, is here a big one but I think what um, what we need to couple is sort of reducing the stresses on one hand but actually increasing conservation or restoration activities because also as good and as needed and as urgent we need to reduce plastic still if we manage the actual areas badly if we you know destroy them in, in different ways uh, unsustainable fisheries whatever it might be then i think we still haven't sort of managed to to look again at this holistic so it has to be reducing the um, the other stresses, but then also actively going into conservation, restoration measures. And that, again, can go from, you know, full no-take uh, protected areas to sort of multiple use zones. Thank you. And in terms of resilience and adaptation, which were words that I just pulled out of what you just said, um, I'd like to move into what's happening with small island states. Uh, which you mentioned as well. And I was once in the Maldives where they were piping in sand to keep the islands there because they were just drowning already. So what is happening with small island states and what can be done? Are we past the point of no return to help some of them or are there ways that they can still uh, adapt and build resilience on their own? No, absolutely. I think that uh, otherwise it would mean giving up and, and we can't do that. And no, um, you know, it's not too late, but I think it's this rhetoric that we hear. It's really now the time to, to do it and get it done. And I think what, what I find exciting is that, um, we do, I mean, as, as ISN, of course, we're looking very much at the sort of nature-based solution side. And when we talk about that in the coastal zone, it's about restoration of, of ecosystem, whether that's mangroves or coral reefs. But we also need to be clear that in some instances, yes, them alone will not do it. Or in some cases, we are too late because of previous human um, interaction that we destroyed, you know, um, areas uh, for the last 10, 50 years. And imagining now that, you know, mangrove is going to be doing its job it could do if it was intact but the the restored uh, or the restoration takes of course uh, much more time so i think that the first is really to ensure that we are not degrading any further of those healthy ecosystems that we have and then on the other side i think um, we see the the linkages what it's often referred to as green gray infrastructure or green green uh, sorry gray green blue infrastructure where we indeed have the opportunity to sort of work a bit more with the engineering side a bit more sort of the harder infrastructure and i think here we have or in various locations an, an opportunity to sort of not just bring in the the more creative um uh, sort of solutions but also different thinking different type of money that could help actually do that so certainly it, it is a very dire situation but i I believe there are more and more sort of these communities coming together, uh, looking at, uh, at sort of these synergistic solutions. And I hope again that we we do this quickly. Mm -hmm. 
And there have definitely been some really strong rallying calls around this at the recent COP in Glasgow and more ambition to just increase awareness and momentum for the ocean. Uh, in terms of finance, the idea of green finance has become more widespread. Uh, climate finance, these are terms that we hear a lot more. What about blue finance and finance that's happening around the ocean? And what are some opportunities to link efforts to gain finance for ocean initi initiatives to uh, fundraising for forest restorations, more of the big land-based financial commitments that we hear about? You've talked a lot about connectivity so far. How does this work in the finance space? Yeah, I, I think a bit similarly um, that the ocean investment is is lagging a bit behind to the sort of green and if we mean sort of the both the, the forest, but also any sort of, let's say, technology, green technology, sustainability investments. But but it's coming. It's definitely um, sometimes you hear the more innovative finance mechanism or under the banner of sustainable blue economy, etc. So it is certainly um, advancing. And I think um, we need to, to use those opportunities. We have um, various sort of impact investment funds that have you know worked for the past few years and we see more uh, more coming to the forefront we see sort of bigger institutional investors there is a tremendous uh, sort of interest to really invest in nature-based solutions whether that is now coastal marine or terrestrial and i think it's sort of on one hand seizing that opportunity but also making sure it's done right it has the high quality standards we want, you know, when we talk social, environmental safeguards, communities, et cetera. So it's a bit a double-sided sword, right? On one hand, it's it's super exciting, but on the other hand, if we don't do it right, it can also go uh, into the wrong direction. But back to, to sort of the ocean topic, I think there we, um, again, also, I mean, from the different players, we see, you know, players like the Green Climate Fund are picking up much more coastal and marine projects, um, sort of also, again, as I said, private investment. We see the multilateral development banks really also going out to uh, to invest in the blue space. But again, here may be a plug for, for nature-based solutions again, because um, for sort of blue economy uh, efforts like um, reducing emissions from shipping or renewables also count as part of those, which in, again, in, in itself can be great. And there needs to be certain, certain uh, risk reduction vis-a-vis -vis biodiversity impacts and so forth. But I think where we still need a lot of support is making sure that we have these bottom-up, really impactful nature-based solutions uh, project. And maybe if I uh, be so uh, kind to, to make my own plug, because we just haven't uh, started a podcast series talking exactly about that, investing for ocean impact, where we're talking to the project developers, the local communities, the impact investor, the bigger financiers, to sort of get a bit real, if you like, in terms of what is working, what's not working, and where do we need to add a bit more, uh, more speed to, to the effort. But it's an exciting space indeed. Fantastic. And could you let us know the name of that podcast so that my colleague can drop that in the chat and then people can Investing find it? Investing for Ocean Impact. <laughs> Investing for Ocean Impact. Thank you. Look forward to listening into some of that. And in terms of the nature-based solutions that you're stressing so strongly, are there certain um, blue coastal marine nature-based solutions that deserve or need finance the most that have power to really create some of these mitigating or adaptive measures quickly? 
Indeed, I think, and, and thank you for also mentioning both adaptation and mitigation, because I think it's not one or the other. Some have my stronger features versus mitigation, but, but we have also, you know, the core reefs, the adaptation value is immense and beyond, you know, whether you call them co-benefits or however you name them, it's sort of, again, the package deal of being there for, for local communities, the nursery grounds for, for fisheries, whether it's local or commercial. And I think this, uh, you don't get a better package deal, if you like, than investing in the mangroves, in the coral reefs. And I think there is a lot of um, uh, focus to some degree on the coastlines, but that's also where we have those precious ecosystems. There is a lot of uh, pressure outside from, from communities or broadly from development, etc. But I think it's also where we have the biggest um, meaning for making it right and, and working for solutions that where, where again, also both just because we, we talk private sector finance, it doesn't mean that philanthropic or sort of government support is, is let off the hook, right? This is about increasing finance, funding, investment across the board. But I think in the coastal space, we can really show how these, these projects between the private sector and sort of NBS can actually work. And I think that is quite exciting, but it's, it's, it's happening. We have the projects, we see them emerging, but it's now a question of scale and sort of mainstreaming. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, and we have some questions coming in from the audience. Uh, one is related to this topic. I'll save it for the end still, but I just wanted to take this moment to say that whoever's listening on whatever platform you're listening from, feel free to type a question or two in the chat box and we can uh, hopefully have some time for those at the end. Uh, so I just want to touch on one more topic before we go to those audience questions, which is that we are now um, a year into the UN decade on ocean science, which is trying to address the fact that there are huge gaps in ocean science. There's a lot we don't know about our blue spaces. We know only of a fraction of the species that live therein. Uh, we have, I think we've explored only 5% of our oceanic waters. So there's so much we don't know. Uh, what is the relationship between the lack of ocean science and things like policy and finance and some of the mechanisms we have to address uh, the ocean in the midst of climate change? Yeah, I, I think I want to start answering that one by saying we have enough science to do something, because I think the, the narrative sometimes around the lack of science leads to, oh, we don't know enough, so let's, uh, you know, let's move. And sometimes you get the, the impression that in order to do something good, we need more science, but in order to avoid something bad, we, you know, there's not this high pressure on providing much more data and information. So I think it's also important to, yes, there's always more to be known. And for sure, the, the ocean has areas and the deep sea, um, you know, is, is less. Uh, less explored and, and researched than, than many other parts of, of the ocean or, or land in, in general. So I think absolutely. And, and I think what we have with the UN uh, decade is giving it again a, a space and an attention that I think it, it deserves that also, as I mentioned, when it comes to, to, to sort of finance that again, um, there is more support from, from governments, um, into research and, and observation. And I, I think also bringing in this, not just you know, 
for the sake of research, but how do we connect this much better um, to solutions? And again, bringing this back to the UNFCCC, there is a whole research and observation agenda, which also touches already on, on ocean um, on ocean data, etc. And I think here it would be fantastic if over the next few years, really, there is the increasing collaboration, you know, uh, north-south, whichever type of sort of collaboration um, there is to really improve also the uh, the areas that might be sort of more underfunded or under-researched when it comes to to regional or sort of local understandings of certain uh, certain settings or characteristics. So I think, again, using this as an opportunity to bring partners together as well as highlighting it sort of as an as a sort of communication tool because I think it gives it really the the well-deserved and needed platform thank you and then the last question before we go to audience questions looking forward to next year there's going to be a UN ocean conference that will be held in Lisbon uh, there's another climate cop in November as there's most years uh, what outcomes do you hope to see most next year for oceans I really hope that we bring forward also um, success stories, what has worked, because we, we tend to often run from one commitment to the next. And yes, we need more money. We need more actors on, on, you know, on the table to really sort of take bold, bold commitment, put, put the dollars on the table. But I think it's also being real about, you know, what has happened, what has worked, bringing some of these, these voices to the forefront, because, um, I think, yeah, we, we tend to sort of trying to reinvent the wheel sometimes. And I think it's also important to show what has worked and what can we scale and what can we sort of mainstream, as I said before. So I'm really hoping on a practical level that uh, we really get the chance throughout the year. And it's going to be a very busy year. The, the, the French government has the... Um, one ocean summit uh, then there is the our ocean conference in palau as you said then sdg 14 and so forth so it's going to be an incredibly busy year so i don't want us to sort of as the ocean community to one trip over the other and and you know just just for the sake of commitments come with somewhat hollow commitments but really if we do them, you know, make them meaningful and, and really sort of with, with a big impact in mind, but then on the other side, give space to, um, you know, to this, this really the efforts that we see happening big and small on the ground. So I would really hope to see that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it's nice to hear that there's so much coming up and so much to look forward to happening in this space. And I think your point about not making more empty commitments is very important, but to really see them through. So I'll go to a question now from Emmy, and she is asking, what kind of nature-based solutions have worked in protecting or restoring oceans? And do you have some concrete examples from around the world? Yeah, great. I think this picks up on the examples about uh, mangrove restoration or conservation. We've seen projects now happening where you combine, for example, plastic, um, taking plastic out of the water, discarded fish nets, uh, you know, moving that into uh, sort of the supply chain for recyclables, and then using some of that revenue actually to to uh, restore and, and protect certain mangrove areas. You have the local community involved. But then, as I said, also ensuring that those intact mangrove areas uh, remain. There are other projects um, around tourism. Obviously, they had a little ditch in the last year, but we see them um, coming back to some degree where, again, sustainable tourism um, 
is an opportunity to generate revenues. You have the, the coastal protection angle of mangroves, uh, and then also, of course, the, the coral reefs around it. Or as I said, um, aquaculture, um, we see opportunities around restoring abandoned shrimp ponds, getting a higher yield for the local farmers uh, due to some premium products. So I think the, you know, the, the, um, the poster child is always the mangroves to sort of show uh, both adaptation. I haven't talked about the carbon or carbon credits, but I think it's looking at these, these yeah, multiple benefits again, whether it's climate biodiversity. And if we have there the mangroves, coral reefs, um, seagrass is of course part of the, the equation. I think we see those happening really across the board. It is nice to see more attention coming towards things like seagrass. I think people get fascinated in these nature-based solutions that offer such potential, and it's nice to see some of these coming from the ocean making their way around headlines more and more. Uh, one last question. I know that we're coming a bit up on time here, but it's from Musa Ibrahim, who's watching in from Nigeria and asking, one of the major problems of our ocean is overfishing and plastic pollution. What can you suggest to mitigate these challenges? Indeed, these are some of the, the bigger um, other stressors than, than the CO2 challenge. And surely, I mean, there are topics like reducing harmful subsidies that play a very important role here. And there are various efforts, you know, under the, the World Trade Organization and so forth that are happening. So there are, of course, big players here and a lot of different interests. But I think that is certainly an, a route that, um, you know, that is worth, uh, worth pursuing for sure. And I I think similarly on on the um, on the plastic side, as I said, I think there we have seen um, both from local communities up to the big corporates to to really taking big uh, big steps. I know, again, I'm not the, not the, the expert here on the plastic side, but some sort of thinking about also broader global agreement around the reduction of plastics. But I think from from a very positive angle, that's certainly where we've seen the biggest steps because it's also it's a very concrete. Um, issue it's a visible issue out there so you can rally the public very well behind it and i think it's also how can we ensure that um, that that continues because surely there's much more to be done on, on plastic again whether it's the microplastic up to to the bigger particles that need to be addressed and i think here the the, the sort of word on uh, circular economy is also very important so how do we not just look at that single point but how do we look at that from a very um you know circular um circular point of view. Mm -hmm. Which I think comes right back to the point that you first made in this conversation, which is that everything is connected and we have to address things as such. And um, I know we've covered so much in this conversation and it was too brief to uh, dig in more, but thank you so much for sharing on everything from policy to finance to some of the most powerful nature-based solutions that we have in mangroves and potentially some entrepreneur listening out there is going to take up food crops growing in the yeah. ocean. <laughs> Please reach out. <laughs> <laughs> Please reach out. Yes, indeed. And we have a question in the chat here. Can we see this interview later? And yes, to anyone who's listening this will be republished and you can listen back and share it at any time um, and i want to thank everyone listening it seems like we had a wonderful global audience today so thank you for taking the time to join us and dorothy thank you for taking the time to join us and really looking forward to seeing the outcomes that should come next year pleasure we'll stay in touch thank you so much that's it for today 
But join us again in two weeks' time as we step back onto dry land and into the complex but fascinating world of carbon finance. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating or writing us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and reach out to us on social media with the hashtag GLFLive. And for everything you need to know about landscapes, ecosystems, and climate change, check out our website at globallandscapesforum.org. We'll see you on the next one.